0: Hello. So um, we're very pleased to have here Nuri Rubini. Roubini. Uh, this event is celebrating the publication of his, his latest book, Crisis Economics. And The book will be available outside, and he'll be signing it, I guess. So um, basically, I'll do this as soon as possible. He will speak for, say, 45 minutes, and then we'll have 30 minutes for questions and answers. Um, and I should say a few words about Nouriel, about if I need to. So, um, Nouriel holds a PhD from Harvard. Then he improved and went to Yale as an assistant professor. Um, was now, he's now a professor at NYU and has been advising, uh, has been a senior advisor at the Council of Economic Advisors, has been advising the US Treasury has been doing doing consultancy for the World Bank, the IMF, but most of all he is Nouriel (laughs) Roubini. He's the man, he's the one that told us that we were in a mess, and I guess we are. And I guess it's especially important to listen to him now because we're in a situation, a crisis, very big things happening, and there isn't anyone really that knows what is gonna happen. Or is there? <laughs> so uh, the podcast will be hopefully available. Thank you very much, Nuriel. Yeah.
1: Um, uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, thanks, Bernardo, for the kind introduction. It's a, a particular pleasure being here at LSC. As you know, I'm uh, uh, mostly an academic. Was done. Uh, research for 20 years, even if I'm more involved now into policy and other questions, and uh, this is one of the most distinguished uh, institutions of academic research, and being in front of students, faculty, and other members of the public, it's a, it's a great pleasure uh, giving this lecture. Um, you know, the, the occasion is tied to think about uh, you know, financial crises, uh, why they occur, what are the consequences, how can we prevent them, and uh, I've been writing this book that was just recently published uh, called uh, Crisis Economics. And, and why crisis economics? You know, we have uh, microeconomics, we have macroeconomics, but uh, what's the sense of doing uh, crisis economics? Uh, it's not an academic book, it's a trade book for the general audience. But I think that uh, the important message I want to convey is that. Uh, uh, for a long time we think of financial crisis being the exception rather than the rule things that should be happening once every 50 years or once every 100 years you know perfect storms that occur randomly just very rarely uh, or as people say you know 20 standard deviation events and the reality is that when you look at the recent uh, financial history of both advanced economies and emerging markets you see a series of uh, financial crisis. And I'll be more specific. A financial crisis could be a currency crisis when the fixed exchange rate peg collapses, could be a systemic banking crisis when a large part of the financial system uh, goes into near insolvency, could be a sovereign debt crisis when the government effectively is unable to pay its domestic and foreign debt and their faults could be also a systemic uh, debt crisis of the corporate sector or of the household sector when they have too much debt or any combination of them, you know, we've had episodes of just a currency crisis, episodes of twin banking and currency crises, and episodes like Argentina where you had the... Uh, uh, currency crisis, a sovereign debt crisis, a systemic bank crisis, a systemic corporate, and a systemic household debt crisis—all of them together. So you have the entire gamut and combination and permutation of all of them. And uh, and these things uh, are occurring very frequently. You know, in the book, uh, we go back uh, hundreds of years to think about even tulip mania and the very first asset bubbles, and um, then you know various episodes in the 17th, 18th, 19th century. And uh, you know another very interesting recent book by uh, Ken Rogoff and Carmen Reinhart uh, looks at 800 years of financial history, showing that even in the Middle Ages you had uh, sovereigns uh, in places like France or even the UK sometimes defaulting, you know, following uh, lost wars, for example. So, so first of all, these things occur quite quite frequently. And if you look just even at the emerging markets, uh, take the period between 1994 and 2002. It started with the peso Mexican peso crisis in 94-95. Then you had the East Asian financial crisis, Thailand, Korea, Malaysia, Indonesia. Then, by the summer of 98, uh, Russia went bust. Then was Brazil that had a currency crisis early 99. Then you had a severe financial crisis in Turkey, in Argentina. Then Brazil again financial pressure in 2002. And then there are also smaller episodes, unless you are a expert of crisis like me you don't even know about, you know, Pakistan, Ukraine, Dominican Republic, Uruguay, you name it, you know, about a dozen major minor, uh, you know, emerging market economy had a severe financial crisis. And it's not just uh, emerging markets, you know. We thought that these crises were mostly in emerging markets, but you look at the history again of the last uh, 30 years, let alone going back to hundreds of years, and you see Things like you know, yet yeah, the stock market collapse in '87, in United States. Uh, the last three recession, the U.S. have been caused all of them by asset bubble went bust, where the real estate bubble in the '80s in the United States, then eventually about 1,400 savings and loans banking institution went bust, that led to a credit crunch a recession in 1991. Then we had in the 90s, the tech bubble. The tech bubble went bust in 2000, 2001. And then you had another pretty severe recession in 2001. Then we created this subprime and housing and mortgage and credit bubble. And the consequence of it had been an even more severe recession, probably the worst uh, economic recession, financial crisis, the US and advanced economies have had uh, in the last, uh, in the last uh, 60 years since the Great Depression. And then you had, you know, the Scandinavian banking crisis. You had the bust of the Japanese uh, real estate and equity bubble in the late late 80s that led to a decade of lost economic growth and near the pressure in Japan during the 1990s. Uh, We've had currency crises even in things like the European monetary system, 92, 93, the pound, the lira, the French franc. And even today, there is a risk of a breakup of the monetary union, the, the Eurozone as well. So the first point is that, you know, if you look at a typical textbook on economics, uh, you know, it speaks about, you know, uh, normal times, about economic growth, and maybe it speaks about the business cycle, of course, that there are sometimes shocks that lead to recession. But their typical recession is different from what has happened in this recent financial crisis. A typical recession is the economy is overheating, maybe monetary policy is loose, inflation gets out of control, then the central bank has to... Tighten monetary policy by putting uh, uh, the, the foot on the, on the brake pedal, then the economy slows, goes in recession, then you kill inflation by rising unemployment, and once you have killed inflation you take the foot off that brake pedal and the economy recovers again. I think instead the features of uh, the kind of financial crisis that I consider that we should worry about is they're not your traditional kind of uh, business cycle that textbook thinks about. They are driven more by uh, what people refer as to balance sheet problems, excessive debt leverage accumulation by private and or public sector. Uh, they are driven by initially asset bubbles that become unsustainable and then you have a bust and a crash. And therefore, they're very different types of uh, animals from your traditional business cycle. And unfortunately, you know the typical textbook in economics uh, or macro or international macro uh, ...doesn't even have a, you know, a single chapter about uh, crisis. And these things happen much more frequently than once every 50 years. That's why the book is titled uh, Crisis Economics. That things that look like abnormal, unfortunately... ...are occurring more frequently uh, and they are more virulent... ...and the economic damage of this financial crisis is severe. I mean, if you think about the latest one... Uh, ...between the losses of income, of jobs, of wealth... ...housing wealth, stock market wealth and eventually the fiscal cost of bailing out banks, financial institutions, houses, and you name it, the costs are really staggering in the trillions of dollars, you know, 10, 20, 30% of GDP. We don't even know uh, eventually what these costs are gonna be. So these things are serious, are damaging, they're occurring more frequently, they're more virulent uh, than otherwise, and therefore we have to try to understand them and hopefully also try to prevent them. So I wouldn't say they are the norm, the rule, but they're certainly not anymore. Uh, the exception, uh, you know, uh, one point that has been made uh, uh, quite correctly is that you know we thought that this great moderation that came from fighting inflation in the late 70s would lead to a period of time of low inflation and high growth. People were speaking about this great moderation, but for a number of reasons we can discuss uh, that growth met- moderation led to financial instability more asset bubble, more credit bubbles, more leverage that eventually has led to more financial instability. So, so we deluded ourselves There was a great moderation, but actually in financial market, something uglier uh, occurred. So, so when I think about crisis, you know, uh, there is this uh, idea, uh, my good friend uh, Nassim Taleb has written a brilliant book that many of you have read or know about, uh, Black Swan, right? About these events that are extreme, uh, and so on uh, that are coming from a distribution that has fat tails where randomly something extreme like a financial crisis can occur. Uh, the way instead I think about crises is not black swan events, but the first chapter of the book uh, is titled White Swan. And White Swan because of uh, two reasons. One is that events that are occurring or supposed to occur once upon a while are occurring much more frequently, even more frequently than a fat uh, tail distribution would suggest. Two, these are not just random events that come out of a bad draw from a distribution, but when you study financial crisis, you see that they are the outcome of a build-up of macroeconomic, financial, and policy vulnerabilities, risks, uh, and mistakes. Things like uh, excessive risk-taking, asset bubble, excessive credit boom and growth, uh, an increase in leverage that eventually leads to an unsustainable situation that leads uh, given certain factors to a crash and a bust and then there is the downside of it so crises occur more frequently than black swan events and in some sense are predictable Uh, not perfectly but you know you could see them coming and in some sense people tell me uh, how come you 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 could tell and predict it early on Uh, first of all i was not the only one many others were warning but I think that you know i had been studying for 10 years uh, financial crisis in emerging market economies first as an academic then I spent two years in Washington on the policy side and then I wrote a book that was more of a policy wonk book titled bailouts versus bail-ins uh, responding to financial crisis in emerging markets uh, in 2004 and then after I finished that book on emerging market crisis I looked at the United States and the United States with his asset bubble, with its uh, fiscal deficits, with its current account deficits, with overvalued currency, with credit boom, to me look like a typical emerging market is on the verge of a financial crisis, so, so in some sense uh, those were patterns. Of course there are differences, but uh, as I point out uh, these things don't come out of nowhere, so they are in many ways uh, kind of predictable. So I think that's, uh, that's, uh, that's an important point. Um, The other observation that I think it's important to make here is that people ask themselves, uh, okay, we had this very severe financial crisis. uh, Now there's a beginning of an economic recovery in the United States, in the Eurozone, in the UK, in Japan, and certainly much more uh, in emerging market economies. And uh, and the question is, is this crisis really over or not? And I think that, again, history would suggest that... uh, Maybe this crisis is not really over. We've just finished the first stage of it, and there is a risk of ending up in a second stage of this uh, financial crisis. Uh, if you look, for example, at the Great Depression, you had the stock market crash in 1929. And then the policy response was botched. You ended up into a severe Great Depression by 1933. Then policy actions were taken. We got out of this uh, Great Depression between 34 and 37 and then other policy mistakes were made that led to another second leg of the Great Depression between 37 and 39. Um, So so there may be kind of long cycles in which elements of a crisis morph into another one. And the element, in my view, is important to consider is the following one. There is a recognition that this particular global financial crisis was driven by excessive risk-taking uh, debt accumulation and leverage by private sector institutions, households that in U.S., U.K. and other countries were uh, perceiving a housing bubble and they borrowed against it. You know, U.S. consumers were using their homes as ATM machines and borrowing against it and spending more than their income. Savings rate fell to zero. So excessive debt of the household sector, certainly excessive leverage of the financial system, both uh, traditional banks and the non. Uh, bank financial institution, what people refer as shadow banks, and also there was a certain amount of debt accumulation in some fat tails of the corporate sector, not as much as households and financial institutions, but even uh, some uh, segments of the corporate sector in a number of countries were over-indebted. So the initial stage of the crisis was excessive risk-taking debt and leverage of the private sector. But what's happening right now, it's important also to understand that what's going on today in Greece, in Portugal, in Spain, in the Eurozone, and those are similar concerns, uh, I'd say, in U.S. and U.K., eventually, is that um, while there's a lot of talk about uh, deleveraging, the reality is that when you look at the debt ratios of private sector in the U.S. and other countries, they're not rising further, but they're barely stabilizing at a very high level. And while there's a lot of talk about the deleveraging, those debt ratios have not really fallen yet sharply, because... U.S. consumers started barely to save and to reduce their debt ratio. They're just stabilizing at very high level. And while there is not really true deleveraging of the private sector, there is now a massive releveraging of the public sector with budget deficits of the order of 10% of GDP in a number of countries, in most advanced economies. You know, people worry about Greece having a deficit of 13.6% of GDP, but you know, this year the U.S. is going to have a deficit of about 11% of GDP in the UK could be higher than 10%, and the same thing in a number of other advanced economies. And this releveraging of the public sector has occurred uh, for three reasons. First of all, during the recession, there are automatic stabilizers, revenue fall because income is falling, and when people lose jobs, there's automatic things like unemployment benefits. So that's automatic stabilizer at work. Two, since there was a collapse for several quarters of private demand, consumption and investment, correctly we decided to do Keynesian stimulus, that we needed to increase government spending and <coughs> reduce taxes, because if we had not done that, then this Great Recession could have turned into something even more severe, like a Great uh, Depression. And again, we also did massive monetary easing to stimulate private demand. And uh, finally, the other third reason why we've had this relevaging of the public sector is that we decided to socialize some of the private losses. Call it ring fencing and backstopping of the financial system, if you like, or call it a bailout uh, if you want to be more critical of it, but certainly we decided to socialize some of these losses and take some of the bad assets of the uh, private sector, especially the financial system, and put it on the back of the government. And as we know, the fiscal cost of bailing out financial institutions in the United States, in Ireland, in UK soon enough, in Spain and other countries are going to be significant. So that's a third element that has led to larger deficits and increases of the stock of public debt. And I think that uh, that's the sense in which I see uh, just the crisis morphing into something different as opposed to being over. Because while it's true that probably the policy stimulus was necessary, if we had not done the zero interest rate policy and the quantitative easing, if we had not done the fiscal stimulus, if we had not backstop the financial system, we would have ended up like the Great Recession, Great Depression, when there was no monetary stimulus, when there was no counter stimulus, and when uh, the idea of creative destruction let essentially allow banks to collapse and thousands of them collapsed, the credit crunch became worse, and then we had something that started as a stock market crash ending up in the Great Depression. So we learned the lessons from the Great Depression. We also learned from some of the policy mistakes of Japan in the 90s and we aggressively tried to at least temper the size of this severe recession, try to get it out of it, and we were in some sense successful. I mean you have to give credit to policymakers that, that monetary fiscal stimulus and the backstopping of the financial system prevented the kind of freefall that was occurring and in the fourth quarter of eight and first quarter of nine if you look at the data. The global economy was literally in free fall. Uh, the fall in output, in production, in employment, in demand, in exports and imports we literally was tracking the same kind of percentage change that we saw between 1929 and 1931. It was scary. Literally, we were on the verge of a, another Great Depression, and we needed all that stimulus. But that stimulus was not ever a free lunch because now the outcome of it is a huge build-up of the stock of uh, public debt in a number of countries, large budget deficits, and eventually if these budget deficits are not addressed by raising uh, taxes or reducing government spending, so traditional kind of fiscal consolidation, then the outcome can be quite ugly. It can be ugly in a number of ways. Uh, Some countries uh, can monetize those fiscal deficits, Uh, countries like the United States, uh, countries like the UK, countries like Japan, Uh, you know they can essentially induce the central bank to print money and monetize it and if you monetize large fiscal deficit for long enough eventually you cause uh, inflation and inflation is a tax on public debt you wrote the real value of public debt so it's a capital levy like a default but it's not technically a credit event but effectively it's a transfer of wealth from savers and creditors to dissavers and borrowers and debtors like the government and if instead you are an emerging market economy that cannot borrow in its own currency, like has happened in Russia, in Argentina, and Ecuador, then the only option is not inflation, but defaulting outright on your debt, that is also capital levy. Now, there is a third case that is the countries of the eurozone, because the countries of the eurozone, technically speaking, look like the US or the UK, because they borrow in their own currency, the euro. But unlike the U.S. and U.K., they don't have automatic access to the printing presses of the central bank because you have an independent European central bank that is not under the control of national fiscal authorities, and therefore the option of monetization, uh, conditional on the ECB not massively monetizing, is not one of... Uh, printing money and causing inflation, but the only option for a country like Greece becomes like an emerging market, the option of defaulting. So in that sense, the members of the Eurozone look more like emerging markets at the end they have unsustainable fiscal problems end up into default as opposed to monetization and inflation. So the point is that that uh, you know at this stage of the financial crisis we have this massive fiscal problem. And if this fiscal problem are not gonna be addressed, then we're gonna get either default Or inflation and each one of them has many negative uh, side effects and uh, and then if the debt of the public sector become uh, unsustainable then the ability of the public sector to then backstop the financial system or support uh, economic activity if there is say a double deep recession becomes severely constrained and my worry right now is that suppose and I'm not saying that's going to happen suppose that we we end up in a double deep recession, say in the Eurozone, something not unlikely, given what's happening. You know, a year ago, when we were in the middle of this financial crisis and economic activity was falling, we could still push down interest rates to zero and do a lot of quantitative easing and double base money. We could still do, like the US, an $800 billion fiscal stimulus and run 10% of GDP uh, fiscal deficit. We could still backstop the financial system and between guarantees, insurance, liquidity support and uh, uh, things and recapitalization, the US committed something like 11 trillion dollar resources to the financial system, three out of the 11 was spent. But suppose we end up in a double dip, then we're running out of policy bullets. You cannot triple or quadruple or quintuple base money after pushing rates to zero, because otherwise you really end up like Zimbabwe with hyperinflation. You cannot have uh, doubling of budget deficits from 10% to 20% of GDP and, pu- and public debt going from 100 to 200% of GDP when markets are already worrying about your deficits. And certainly, as you know, bond market vigilantes have already woken up in Greece, in Spain, in Portugal, in Ireland, in Iceland, and soon enough they could wake up in the UK, in Japan, in the United States if we keep on running very large uh, fiscal deficits. And even the ability to backstop the financial system is going to be limited. If there is another uh, double dip and the losses in the financial system surge, after insuring, guaranteeing $11 trillion of assets, we cannot do another round of it. The problem being that while banks might be too big to fail, they're also too big to be saved or too big to be bailed out. In a number of countries, given the fiscal constraints of the government, the ability if there is another banking crisis of the sovereign to backstop the financial system is going to be limited. How can you guarantee deposits uh, uh, if you're a government, if you're insolvent yourself, you know, your guarantee means nothing in a situation which you leverage yourself so much as a government that your guarantees are meaningless because uh, you are you are essentially bankrupt. And therefore I think that the big concern I have is that I'm not predicting uh, necessarily another double dip. I'm not predicting a Great Depression. I think that this rise in public debt and deficit is really the next stage of this financial crisis. And if this problem is not addressed correctly, then we have a problem. And, of course, the delicate trade-off today on the fiscal side is a little bit uh, them if you do and them if you don't. If you took away the fiscal stimulus too soon, when the recovery of private demand is still anemic and tentative, the risk is that you essentially end up back into recession, deflation. Uh, and that's why the U.S. and others are saying, let's maintain the fiscal stimulus. On the other side, if you keep on running because of that large deficit, because you're saying it's not the time to take away the stimulus, then run away fiscal deficits, Uh, and their monetization lead you either to a fiscal train wreck and default or if you monetize it eventually to inflation and rising inflation is going to push long-term interest rates higher and it's going to crowd out then the recovery through higher nominal and real rates. So in some sense the dilemma we're facing today is the dilemma about exit strategies. Them if you do, them if you don't. If you exit too soon you're in trouble. If you exit uh, too late you're also in trouble. And uh, And doing the right thing is going to be, you know, uh, politically difficult. It's going to be politically difficult because while economists would tell you, of course, to avoid uh, default or inflation, you have to raise taxes and cut spending, preferably cut spending rather than raising distortion taxes, the issue is not the economic prescription, apart from the question of the timing, but is the political will of governments to do the right thing. And I think that one of the unfortunate things happening right now is that in many of the advanced economies, uh, the political will to do the right thing is constrained. For example, in the United States, Democrats and Republicans are really divided. There is a disappearing center. There is no bipartisanship. The Republicans are effectively <coughs> vetoing tax increases. The Democrats are against spending cuts. Uh, you know, this year is an election year, midterm election. 2012 is going to be another election year, presidential. You know, I wrote a book about political cycles and the macroeconomy. And the lesson is that when there is divided government, with the election, there is no fiscal consolidation, deficits are larger than otherwise. So this year there's not going to be any fiscal consolidation in the US, in 2012 there's not going to be any, and next year if the Republican win the House in the midterm election, then there might veto even more any tax increases and that stalled situation might actually maintain the deficit larger. So. This year in the U.S. we have a deficit of a trillion and a half dollars. is expected to be a trillion dollars for unchanged policies for the next 10 years. And uh, if there is this divided government or split, uh, on lack of bipartisanship, if we're going to run a trillion dollar deficit this year, next year, 2012, I would say that the bond market vigilantes that have woken up, as I pointed out, in Greece and the Eurozone, the chances are going to be they're going to wake up in the United States in the next three years and say this is unsustainable. And of course, if there is no willingness to tax or cut spending, that the, the part of least resistance becomes, keep on monetizing it. And the Fed in US for the last year has bought $1.8 trillion between Treasury bonds, agency Fannie and Freddie, RMBSs and agency debt, so we already have seen massive monetization of fiscal deficits. You know, in the UK, similar issue, now you have a hand parliament, so there is now a coalition of these two parties, they say they are committed to fiscal consolidation, we'll see is not yet tested when the tough choices on cutting spending, raising revenue have to be done. We'll see uh, how willing uh, the two parties are to work together. As I said, historical empirical studies suggest that multi-party coalition tend to have larger deficits than unified majoritarian governments. Or take a country like Germany where the coalition of Merkel has lost now the majority in the upper parliament following their decision to, unquote, bail out uh, uh, Bill out Greece. Uh, are they going to have the willingness to do the reforms? Look at what's happening in Greece: uh, riots, people dying in the streets, strikes, and same things are starting to happen in Spain, uh, in Portugal. Look at what's happening in Japan: that you have a weak government that is really unable to do structural reforms that are needed for restoring growth in the economy and uh, restoring fiscal fiscal austerity. So my worry is that actually, if you look at many of these advanced economies. Uh, you see a situation not just of severe fiscal problem and a need for structural reform, but governments tend to be relatively weak and unable for a number of reasons of doing the right thing. So if you introduce the political economy of delaying the necessary adjustment, then uh, like in emerging markets where there are political biases that maintain deficits for longer, eventually the risk of a fiscal and financial crisis becomes, uh, becomes a serious one. And in some sense, you know, uh, if I have to think about uh, a kind of like, not a formal definition of a financial crisis, but an informal one, uh, the way I would define a financial crisis is when policymakers have to get together on a long Saturday and Sunday and try to design a rescue package before markets open on Sunday night uh, in Asia or open in U.S. and Europe, you know, Monday morning. And we've seen that particular story in many of the emerging market crises from Mexico to Asia, you name it. And then we saw it in the U.S. and Europe. We saw it in U.S. at the time of the bailout of Bear Stearns, that Saturday and Sunday, at the time of the Botcher rescue of Lehman, at the time of uh, the rescue of Fannie and Freddie, at the time of the tarp. And we thought that those long weekends in which people are desperately trying to do a package uh, will be over. And that was a sign that crisis was was over. But guess what? Just a couple of weekends ago, you had uh, the 16 ministers of the Eurozone having to get together on a Saturday and Sunday, 15 hours nonstop each day, to come out uh, with a rescue package, not just for Greece, uh, but also for the rest of the potential uh, members of the Eurozone. So by that standard, I would say, Crises uh, are not over, and they're not also over, because I remember when I was in government in the late '90s, uh, we had you know, rescues of countries like uh, Korea, it was a large emerging market economy. At that time, you had a big IMF package that was uh, you know, 10 billion dollars. At that time, 10 billion dollars considered a huge amount of money. Uh, and then the largest, uh, the largest emerging market rescue was uh, Brazil in 2002, and that was uh, 30 billion dollars. Now, fast forward. Take Greece alone. This uh, 110 billion euro rescue package between IMF and EU is, uh, is equivalent to 140 billion dollar. So it's between four to five times larger than the largest uh, bailout that was of uh, your country, uh, you know, uh, Brazil. So, and even that uh, doesn't seem to be enough. And uh, and uh, and that's not enough. Uh, you know, uh, they. The bailout of Bear Stearns was a $40 billion affair. You know, the bailout of Fannie and Freddie was a $200 billion affair. Uh, The bailout of AIG could be up to uh, $250 billion affair. Uh, The TARP uh, kind of uh, program of recapitalization of US banks was, uh, you know, 700 billion kind of uh, bailout, but now this European bailout that was passed just uh, two weekends ago, in dollar terms, you know, Euro is 750 billion dollars, almost a trillion dollar. So we've gone from uh, 10 billion to Korea to a trillion dollar. So, you know, uh, that's the new normal when it comes to financial bailouts. So again, by this standard, saying the crisis is over when these uh, packages of rescue are becoming larger and larger by any measure and scale suggest how things are problematic. We started with private sector liquidity and solvency problem, then we had rescues by national governments of this private sector livelihoods, like they put it on the back of the sovereign, now the back of many sovereigns is breaking up, and now you have these multilateral rescues of groups of countries having to rescue individual countries, either at the EU level or at the IMF level. And the question is, you know, uh, what's going to be the, the next stage? Uh, and at which point, for example, countries like Germany are going to say enough and are not willing to do it. And when you cannot bail out the sovereign at that point, you know, you can end up again with financial disaster uh, for for the private sector, so so my point is there is a economic recovery we have to recognize it, but in many ways uh, U.S. Uh, Eurozone U.K. but even some of the emerging markets have kicked the can down the road. They have not really addressed the fundamental problems, and um, and uh, and therefore the next stage of this crisis could be uh, could be you know solving that problems that lead to a double depression. Now. Um, there is so much one could say about how to prevent crisis. And you know, in the book I have two full chapters about how to reform the system of supervision regulation of financial institutions. Uh, that's one of the important things is necessary. Uh, and I would say the following thing: uh, What is being proposed so far in the U.K., in the United States and by G20 goes in the right direction and by, in my view, is not enough. You know, the, the view is the following one. We need uh, banks that have more capital, better capital, less leverage, more liquidity. Uh, we're gonna deal with the too-big-to-fail problem by essentially having more capital for too-big-to-fail institutions and having an insolvency regime that's gonna be able to orderly close down a major institution is insolvent. We're gonna deal with derivatives by putting some of it on exchanges. And dealing with the counterparties with a clearing house, uh, we're going to have some systemic regulator, some degree of international cooperation, and things of that sort. And that should be enough. Uh, my fear is that uh, that is not going to be enough. That actually uh, these reforms are more cosmetic, and it's time to radically think about what is it that leads over and over again to huge banking crises that then lead to massive fiscal costs. And unless we address these problems, And I would say a number of people, uh, you know, from Mervyn King uh, at the Bank of England to people like uh, Paul Volcker in the US, people like Martin Wolf have said we need more radical reforms. And I'm also of that view. Uh, Why I'm of that view? uh, Take uh, banks that are, unquote, uh, too big to fail. These banks were too big to fail, but now because of the banking consolidation, they've become even bigger to fail. Take the United States, uh, JP Morgan took over Bear Stearns and Washington Mutual, uh, Bank of America took over Countrywide and Merrill Lynch, uh, Wells Fargo took over Vacovia. and even Citigroup wanted Vacovia not because it was a good bank, was insolvent, but because they thought if we take it over, it become even bigger to fail and we'll get more uh, government bailout. They were fighting on Vacovia. It was an insolvent institution, yet Wells Fargo and City fighting almost in court was going to take it over. I mean, you wonder what was the reason behind it. Was I uh, become even bigger to fail, first point. Secondly, these institutions have become now even bigger to fail, and they know they've been bailed out once, and if trouble occurs, they're going to be bailed out again. And so far, we have not created either a resolution regime or the capital standard that's going to lead them to, to behave otherwise. So the fundamental problem remains. And the idea we're going to be able to close down orderly an institution like, say, Morgan Stanley or J.P. Morgan or whoever, uh, or Goldman Sachs in the next crisis, to me, is far-fetched. You know, it's hard enough to have an orderly national resolution regime of a too-big-to-fail institution. Most of these institutions do business in 100 different countries, and even those kind of solvency regimes are going to be at best national. So it's going to be a total chaos to try to shut down orderly Goldman Sachs if they get in trouble again. And the reality is that since it's going to be too hard to do it in an orderly way using this insolvency regime, you're going to bail them out again. That's going to be the outcome of it. So my view is, like many others, uh, again, Mervyn King, Paul, Krug, uh, Paul Volcker, even Alan Greenspan has said so, if institutions are too big to fail, they're just too big, and you should break them up or induce them through various types of uh, regulation to b- make themselves uh, smaller. Secondly, these institutions are not just too big to fail, but as I pointed out, they are too big uh, to save at this point, or too big to be bailed out. In many countries, uh, the size of this implicit liability they are so large and the weakness of the sovereign so significant that if a systemic banking crisis were to occur, the sovereign doesn't have the resource for bail out their own institutions. So, too big to fail, and too big also to be bailed out. And three, these institutions are not only too big to fail, but they're also too large and too complex to be properly managed in terms of risk management. You know, Think of it, you have an institution that is a financial supermarket that has commercial banking, investment banking, prop trading, private equity, hedge fund activities, underwriting of securities, derivative market making and dealing, uh, asset management, insurance and, and anything else under the sun that goes under the definition of financial services. You know, even the most brilliant CEO or board of directors cannot really monitor uh, the action of thousands and thousands of P&Ls and every single trader and every single banker is a separate p l who has a certain budget and capital is trying to maximize the return. Uh, for that firm. So it's mission impossible. I mean, this institution is becoming so complex that, as we know, many of the CEOs of this company had no clue even on what these very exotic uh, new products were. You know, you take a bunch of dodgy triple uh, B. Uh, subprime mortgages, then you repackage them into residential mortgage backed securities. Then you convert that stuff by slicing it, dicing it into CDO, and then the CDO becomes a CDO of a CDO, and then a CDO of a CDO of a CDO, CDO cubed, and then you do it synthetically. And at the end of the day, you have new instruments that are new, complex, exotic, mark to model rather mark to market, non transparent, non tradable. And, and you have that kind of financial disaster we had, so uh, lots of financial innovation didn't make sense and institutions are way too complex to be managed properly. So that's why you know, uh, the US view, uh, the Volcker rule that bank holding companies should not be doing prop trading, should not be involved in private equity and hedge fund activities necessary. It's not fair to use Uh, taxpayers' money in the form of insured deposits to allow stuff that is risky. I'm not against risky stuff, you know. If you want to be a hedge fund and you want to take a lot of risk uh, and then if you do well, you do well, and if you don't do well, you go bankrupt and you shut down, you take those risks and, and they and the public sector and the taxpayer money is not at risk. But having major financial institutions now having access to let no last resort of the Fed, zero interest rates, insured deposits, and being involved in this, this activity, to, to me, it just doesn't make sense. Apart from uh, leading to risky behavior. So, And I would go farther than the Volcker rule. In my view, uh, not only we should break up big banks, but we should also go back to the kind of restrictions that were existing under Glass-Steagall when uh, Banks and commercial banks and investment banks were separate from each other, and certainly banks could not be involved into insurance, asset management, crop trading, uh, you know, private equity, and hedge fund activities. You know, each one of these financial services as a role should be played by different institutions rather than being under a financial supermarket and I would say the experience has been that the so-called economies of scale and scope deriving from having large financial institutions providing a large set of financial services turn out to be very small and the cost of them being too big to fail and then too complex to manage to be much larger. Look at the episodes like Citigroup, ING, and a number of other episodes. So, so I'm, I'm in favor of more kind of radical thing. Unfortunately, I think that the political economy is, of these things is that, uh, you know, that the proposals of the G20 are not radical enough. Uh, and even these proposals are relatively moderate. Now there is a pushback by the financial sector and their lobbies. They're saying that's too much. Uh, we don't want it, and they're working hard uh, even to prevent relatively mild and moderate reforms uh, from occurring, let alone the more radical ones uh, that have been suggesting. You know, the sense, uh, at least in the U.S., on Wall Street is you know, the crisis is over. We're back to business as usual. Firms are involved in lots of prop trading or related activities that are the main source of their own uh, profits, not much credit creation that goes to real businesses, and individuals return to leverage, to risky behavior, and now with the backstop of, of the government. And that's why now there is a political backlash against it. People say it's populism, but you know, in this country like the U.S. now, we'll have to have very painful fiscal cuts, spending services, increasing taxes, and in part of it, we'll need that because we decide to bail out banks, financial institutions and bankers so then the question is what's the fairness of that and that's why if we don't address the fairness of it by doing it right first of all and then imposing the right types of taxes to induce more uh, prudent behavior and also taxes to recoup some of the losses that have been imposed on the taxpayer that political backlash is going to be severe. Uh, just a few final observations maybe and then I'll wrap up. Yeah.
0: You have like Eight
1: minutes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, I, will, I will talk a little bit there, given that it is the, the cries of the day or concerns of the day about what's happening right now in Greece and the Eurozone and the risk of a breakup of it. Well, the observation I'll make is first of all is that what's happening in Greece as I pointed out is just the tip of an iceberg of a broader range of sovereign debt issues and deficits in many advanced economies. Not just the Eurozone but as I said UK, US, uh, uh, you know Japan and as I pointed out eventually the bond vigilantes will wake up also in US, UK and Japan unless we address this fiscal thing the second point is that uh, uh, the problems that are faced by the periphery of the eurozone, call it periphery or laggards or some people use the derogatory term pigs Portugal, Italy, Ireland uh, uh, Greece and, and Spain uh, they are not just problems of high deficit and debt that's one part of the problem but there are also problems of loss of international competitiveness and of large external imbalances, current account deficits, and that loss of competitiveness is manifesting itself in very weak and dynamic economic growth. Uh, these were countries that were already losing market shares a decade ago to China, to Asia, even to Turkey, because their exports are traditionally labor-intensive and low-value added, things like you know, textile, apparel, leather, and you name it, and now that stuff you can produce uh, shirts and suits much more cheaply in, in Asia and around the world. So they were already losing market shares because of that. Then you had the decade in which, for a number of reasons, wages in these countries were growing more than productivity. So unit labor costs were rising. And the real exchange based on unit labor costs was appreciating. And that loss of competitiveness manifested itself in large and growing current account deficits of the order of 10% of GDP or above in places like Greece and Spain. And, of course, the final nail in the coffin was the sharp appreciation of the euro that occurred between 2002 and 2008 that led to further real appreciation and loss of competitiveness. So this country faced the dual issue of having to stabilize public deficits and debts, but also to restore competitiveness and growth. And then there are a number of very tough questions, in spite of $1 trillion of money on the table. That's why the initial response of the market was, you know, the IMF, EU is coming to the rescue, but then as people start to ask the hard questions, then the markets have been sliding further down, the euro has been weakening, spreads are widening again, and there is uncertainty about whether that rescue is going to be enough. So why is it going to maybe not enough? First of all, the money comes conditional on fiscal austerity and structural reform. So the question is, will the country do it? Uh, secondly, there's a political economy of whether this country can take this much fiscal austerity. You know, Greece alone is supposed to reduce its budget deficit from over 13% of GDP to 3%. And even if it does so, the public debt of Greece is going to stabilize under the IMF program three years from now at a level of 140% of GDP. There's always a knife edge between being insolvent and not. The dynamic can tip into insolvency very fast when debt ratios are that high. Uh, so that's the issue. And politically, of course, can a country already having riots and people dying in the streets and strikes do that much suffering and adjustment austerity? Uh, it's highly likely that's not going to be possible. So in my view, Greece is an insolvency problem. It's not just a liquidity problem. Secondly, in the short run, and that's going to be an issue, not just in the Eurozone, but also in the U.K. and U.S. In the short run, raising taxes and cutting spending leads to a slowdown of economic activity or even continuation of a recession. While it is necessary, because if you maintain the large deficit, eventually you go bankrupt, or if you monetize, you have high inflation. So you need to do the fiscal consolidation. But if you do it in the short run, raising taxes and cutting spending leads to less aggregate demand and lower economic growth. And therefore the question is can you impose austerity when output is falling? And can you achieve the stabilization of your deficits and debt when output is falling? You might try to reduce your deficit and stabilize it as a share of GDP, but if the denominator GDP is falling, it's a vicious circle because as you cut spending raise taxes, GDP is falling and therefore achieving certain target becomes difficult. That's the that uh, growth trap that Argentina fell into between 98 and 2001 when they were doing fiscal adjustment and output kept on falling and became mission impossible and eventually they defaulted. So there's that problem, that uh, the output effects are negative in the short run and the question is what you do in terms of easier monetary policy or weakening of your currency to compensate for that. And then the question is how you restore competitiveness and growth. Uh, there are only three ways of doing it. In the case of a eurozone, uh, if you don't have your independent uh, exchange rate, meaning unless you exit the monetary union, give up on the euro, and go back to the drachma or the lira or the peseta. One way to do it is through deflation, falling prices and wages for many years until you restore competitiveness to a real depreciation, not through the nominal exchange, but through prices. But that solution doesn't work. It's politically unfeasible because deflation is always associated with severe and continued recession. And there's no social and political body can accept a recession for five years just to get induced enough reduction in prices and wages so you get that real depreciation. Again, Argentina tried the deflation route to real depreciation, and after three years they gave up and they defaulted. So that's not the way of doing it. It's going to be mission impossible in Greece or in Portugal and Spain. The second way of doing it, of course, is to do the structural reform like Germany did. You accelerate structural reform, you accelerate corporate restructuring, you increase productivity growth, you try to keep a lead on wages, and over time if wages start to grow less than productivity rising, labor costs fall and you restore competitiveness. But guess what? It took about 10 to 15 years for Germany to achieve that improvement in competitiveness through this uh, process of corporate restructuring. If Greece or Spain were to, to start today Uh, Before you see the positive result on growth and productivity, it's going to be five years from now. In the short run, doing structural reform actually is negative because you have to shut down firms and sectors that are inefficient. You have to fire workers in sectors that are declining. And eventually, you have to transfer human and physical capital and resources and innovation into the sectors in which you have a comparative advantage, you get all the short-term costs and the benefits are down the line, and that's why structural reforms have not occurred even before a crisis in the Eurozone because politicians said, it's too tough to do the Lisbon agenda because we get all the short and negative effects. And by the time we get the benefits, we might be out of power. And doing those structural reform becomes even harder in bad times than in good times because you are not doing it in good times, let alone imposing more sacrifices on top of fiscal austerity uh, when you have a recession. So how are you gonna do that kind of stuff? So if you, you're not gonna use deflation and you're not gonna use uh, structural adjustment then uh, either you exit uh, the monetary union the something can happen, or the value of the euro has to weaken sufficiently enough that then the competitiveness is being regained. And for that to happen, you need the ECB to have a much more easy monetary policy, not just to buy government bonds in a sterilized way, but actually increase base money so that you deal with the deflationary effect of fiscal consolidation, because as many countries do the fiscal adjustment, there is a lack of aggregate demand. You have to compensate from it with easier monetary policy in an unsterilized way and to try to weaken then the value of the euro to restore uh, competitiveness. Short of that, I would say one or more members of the eurozone could default. Uh, I would say even if uh, Greece does not exit the monetary union is likely uh, eventually it's going to have a coercive restructuring of its public debt because I don't think that it's stabilizing 140 percent of GDP is sustainable and even to get that point you have to do a 10 percent primary adjustment and the risk is that if deflation doesn't work and structural reform take too long uh, and if the euro were not to weaken enough then some of these weaker members of the eurozone might decide uh, they're better off exiting the monetary union, and therefore you will have a kind of a breakup of the monetary union, uh, maybe not a collapse of the euro. Some uh, stronger uh, members of it might remain German, a few other ones, but certainly some of the periphery laggards might decide that the benefits of exiting uh, the monetary union might be greater than the cost of staying into one, and therefore uh, there's a possibility of a breakup of the monetary union. So, so these are my kind of general observations. There is much more uh, that I have not touched, but I'm told uh, it's a good time to stop here, and uh, since I cheered you up and let you ask uh, some, 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 some questions, thanks for your attention.
0: Should we take questions in three and three, or should we take questions in three and three? Or? Yes. Okay. So um, we'll take questions. There will be plenty, I guess. So three questions at a time. Um, okay, there's a question there in purple and a question there in green What the students? Hi. Um, so. Hi. Um, as you come know
1: many of Hello, um, hi. As you probably know, many of the Eastern European countries um, are trying to join the euro or have joined the euro, have a pact to the euro. Um, what, would you be, what, what would be your advice? Should they go on with this process, or should they maybe rethink the process and delay it, or should they abandon
0: it altogether? Okay, good. Yeah. Thank you yeah. very much. Thank you. Um,
2: two, two questions. Uh, first, you haven't mentioned anything about the, the speculative attack on Greece. Is there really any speculative attack as has been mentioned in the paper? And the second thing is that uh, there's been discussion in the political level, on the, especially in the G20 and IMF to implement the tax on financial stability and the financial activity transaction. Will it make you less concerned about the next uh, white swan or it make it worse?
0: Okay, the question. There's, there's a question there in black. There's another in pink here. That we take yours afterwards. We start from this one. Uh, hello, my name is Sandeep Bansal, and uh, thank you very much, Professor Rubini, for the uh, for the talk. I look forward uh, to the book. Um, you you outlined that uh, ongoing monetization will lead to inflation, and and I'm hoping to maybe hear your comments about the risk of deflation. I mean. These asset bubbles are sooner or later, they have to deflate. You will get a contraction in, in, in credit. And I'm just wondering um, whether a global deflation scenario is, is possible. Thank you. Okay, so let's answer those. Um, the first was about whether the country should still join the euro. Um,
1: yeah. Um, well, on, on the issue of whether uh, the Central European countries should join the euro. I think in part the decision does not depend only on themselves, because uh, the European uh, Union and the ECB is now saying, uh, wait a moment, we allowed in uh, uh, two early countries, that maybe we're not ready, say Greece, maybe Portugal, and therefore we should be much more cautious on who we're going to let in. Uh, so there's a question of whether they're going to be allowed in soon, even if uh, they want to let, uh, get in. And, and then there's the question of whether they themselves are going to realize maybe it's better to stay outside, uh, get the benefits of the trading integration, but maybe wait until maybe they are the fiscal and monetary inflation condition for being member of the monetary union in a way that does not lead to, to trouble. And I would say both things are at work right now, going to delay the entrance of new members. For example, you know Estonia is now supposedly qualifying in terms of the criteria for joining the monetary union. Uh, And the European Commission has said, yes, you qualify, but uh, DCB, seeing what has happened in Spain, Portugal, Greece is saying, well, we're not really sure, maybe we should wait longer. Uh, And some countries like, you know, in Poland, uh, uh, you know, uh, people, uh, policymakers have signaled maybe by looking what has happened, we're not ready yet, let's wait longer. So I think that... um, in a situation which we don't even know whether there's going to be really a euro with the current members, the idea of rapidly enlarging the monetary union uh, is it's maybe not a good idea, and I think one of the critical lessons has been, uh, among many other things, you have to make sure that there is, a, there is a fiscal discipline, because even a small Greece, that is only 3% of the Eurozone uh, GDP, its disorderly collapse and default and exit from the monetary union will have some massive disaster effects on it. First, losses for financial institutions holding the public debt in Germany, in France, the rest of the Eurozone, Two, a dominant effect in which we're going to say who's next after, after Greece, Portugal, Spain, and so on. So even a little tiny, Greece can have systemic effects at the regional level, if not globally. Let alone uh, uh, larger countries, and therefore I think the, the response is going to be the ECB is going to be much more cautious the ECB, the EU is going to be more cautious on um, on whether these uh, taxes on the financial system are necessary uh, and the IMF has proposed a couple of them I would say yes for a number of reasons you know first of all, just to internalize the externality of too big to fail, you have to impose uh, either capital charges or taxes so that uh, financial institutions in advance are not going to leverage themselves and take so much risk uh, because uh, they're going to pay for it. That's one argument for a tax. Second argument for a tax is you know, a question of uh, social fairness. Uh, you know, we should tax uh, the institutions that we bailed out because the fiscal cost of bailout were large. Otherwise, the average individual will have to do it. And uh, three, you know, in a situation in which financial institutions are back to business as usual and bonuses are becoming, again, outrageous, taxing some of this excessive compensation is going to be also something that, from a social point of view, uh, you know, we should be doing. On inflation versus deflation, I would argue that in the short run, I've been saying for a while, in advanced economies, that are more deflationary rather than inflationary pressures. You have a slack in goods market with uh, demand less than supply, growth below potential, output gaps wide and rising. You have a slack in labor markets with unemployment close to 10% workers don't have any wage bargaining power if anything are accepting lower wages to keep their jobs, so slugging goods and labor market imply with massive excess capacity more deflation and the data uh, so far for US, uh, for the Eurozone for Japan have been consistent with deflation. In UK you see a beginning of inflation in my view for more temporary reasons, Uh, but eventually of course over time inflation could re-resultly add if we have a large fiscal deficit that (coughs) <coughs> eventually, eventually monetize, so definitely <coughs> there's a risk of inflation coming back, but it's a story for 2012-13, not for this year or next year when the slack in goods and labor markets are going to play more deflationary rather than uh, inflationary pressures.
0: Thanks. Uh, there's another question over there. Um, I'll take the question from here. Yes. And
1: Sir? Just following up on your point about the need for greater fiscal discipline, I mean, basically, you're not going to have greater fiscal discipline in uh, the Eurozone, basically, without a common fiscal policy. I mean, they're all incapable of fiscal discipline. They've shown that, even the bigger countries. And that basically, you can't have, as Paul Hawker said here last week, common monetary policy without common governments' governance common fiscal policy, greater integration. I mean, he agreed very much with your analysis. The first 10 years of the Eurozone were wasted. Structural reforms weren't undertaken. His comments on last week were that they were basically bought time, I and mean, obviously it was pretty pessimistic that he would use that time any more than he used the first decade in the Eurozone. So the, op- the outlook must be pretty pessimistic.
2: Question there? Yeah, sure. Um- <coughs> Uh, My question is really about, um, uh, uh, I'm not not sure I heard um, all the the options that you went through about uh, what to do now, and my question is um, whether you think that the option of engaging in greater stimulus is is realistic, uh, not least because you mentioned that in fact the stimulus has in fact been stabilizing, it has prevented... Um, the the present uh, uh, downturn from becoming a Great Depression, etc. So if it was sufficiently effective to that extent, can it not be more so? Can it not get uh, economic activity moving again uh, without creating um, fiscal problems?
0: Okay, I'll take a question from there, I guess. Anyone from there? Okay, a green question there.
2: I would like to uh, ask a question uh, regarding uh, breaking up the banks. You mentioned that that's one of the solutions that you suggest. Um, What would you say to Germany, uh, who has uh, banking consolidation on top of their agenda for quite a long time, and uh, they also have a flurry of small London banks who were hit by the crisis in exactly the same manner as the large banks, who are not very competitive, who do not possess... Uh, risk management systems which are sufficient to assess risks and uh, who would probably benefit from consolidation and becoming banks which are big to fail? Uh, so that's question number one. And uh, if I can, second question, very little sm- small one, thank you. Um, uh, So what do you think about the measures which are targeted, not on the fundamental reasons for the crisis, but which are targeted um, uh, on speculation on the market? So, for example, measures which are being taken now, like a ban on short-selling of Eurogavis, or uh, things like um, taking uh, the losses from uh, mark-to-market of Eurogavis from the regulatory capital of Italian banks, uh, do you think that uh, these measures could um, sort of hit the, uh, the market and help the market get uh, out of the crisis by itself, mm-hmm. at least in the short term? Yeah. Thank you.
1: Thank you. <coughs> uh, well, you know, maybe I'll start with the last question because actually it was also the other gentleman who was asking what's the role of uh, speculation in driving maybe pressure on Greece and other markets. So. Uh, are these spreads widening uh, because uh, of the fundamentals being weak, or is it the evil speculators that are shorting the euro shorting through CDSs the debt of Greece and other countries and causing more uh, volatility and fall in asset prices justified by fundamentals uh, you know my view on those issues is that uh, whenever there are financial pressure on a country, initially they are driven by weakness of <coughs> macroeconomic policy and financial fundamentals. Uh, it's not as if speculators wake up in the morning and say, let's attack a country that's otherwise sound, or run on a bank that is otherwise sound. There is usually reason to believe that the country is in trouble, the financial institution is in trouble. So usually financial crises are not the outcome of self-fulfilling, a random, multiple equilibria run uh, on a country, on a currency, on a bank, but they are the result of the fact people realize that there is problems of illiquidity, of financial imbalances, of potential insolvency of that bank, of that country, of that set of institutions, of those governments, and that's the trigger for the financial crisis. The idea of a pure self-fulfilling, bad equilibrium, I think, uh, is not based on reality. But of course, uh, once then, you know, investors see blood uh, there spilling, uh, you know, they, they can be perceived like sharks smelling the blood and therefore then there's herding behavior there's momentum trading and asset prices may fall even more than fundamental because uh, you know risk management deleveraging and so on leads to these vicious cycles in which prices fall even more than justified by the weakness in economic fundamental and that's part of the market dynamics that occurs in a crisis and probably to control that type of market dynamics There are a number of things you have to do or you can do prudentially. You can have things like suspending appropriately when necessary, you know, mark-to-market. That might be an option. Uh, There are arguments for maybe, you know, prohibiting uh, naked shorting of, uh, of securities. And there may be also some arguments, and that's a debate on whether, you know, a individual or a firm that doesn 't have a material interest uh, in a particular firm should be allowed to essentially uh, be involved into purchasing insurance through credit default swaps. you know the traditional argument about insurance is you can insure your own home or car, but uh, you should not be allowed to insure. Uh, your neighbor's home or car, because the incentive is then to go and burn down that uh, that home and get the insurance. And some people say, you know, that's why you know, Warren Buffett used to say uh, derivatives are weapons of mass destruction. So uh, I think that's a bit of an extreme. There is an important role for derivatives to play, but there may be a situation in which. Uh, naked uh, use of CDS's might actually exasperate the situation that is already weak because of the fundamental things. So, so in my view, it's not the evil speculators who have shorted the Greek uh, uh, bonds or the euro. Is that there are fundamental reasons I discussed on why the euro is weakening and why Greece is in trouble. After all, 13.6% of GDP deficit and lying over and over for it and having a public debt GDP ratio of 120 is prima facie evidence of of risk of insolvency. But certainly market dynamic can exasperate then those fundamentally driven movements. On uh, whether we need greater stimulus, uh, you know, it depends because in some countries that are still in a recession, like Greece, like Portugal, like Spain, like maybe the UK and Ireland, the markets are saying either you do fiscal consolidation now or I'm going to punish you because I'm worried about you eventually defaulting and I don't care whether, you know, you have still a recession, you have to raise taxes and cut spending and actually a number of these countries started to do those things even before the recession was over. So, in some sense, if the market is going to punish you by widening your spread and ending up then in a nastier situation, you have no choice but trying to restore your credibility even if the short-term effect might be loss of output. There are ways of resolving the trade-off by having a, a, how to say, a schedule of fiscal commitment. Say, I'm gonna start slowly, slowly raising taxes for the next few years. I'm gonna slowly, slowly commit to reduce spending. I'm gonna commit to reduce entitlement spending and funded liabilities coming from pension systems or healthcare system. And if you can credibly say, I'm gonna do it over time, over the next few years and you need a little more of a stimulus in the short run because the economy has not yet recovered, then the markets <coughs> are not going to punish you. But if you do more stimulus in the short run and you have no credible and committed plan to do the fiscal consolidation over time the market is going to say you're playing the same game of fiscal indiscipline and I'm going to be punishing you. So there are ways of uh, uh, squaring that circle available but you have to have a plan for medium term consolidation otherwise the markets are not going to uh, allowed to do it. On uh, on this issue of whether you need a monetary fiscal union and a monetary union, yes, you need You know the criteria for a certain set of countries being an open currency areas are many, uh, flexibility of labor markets, capital mobility, uh, you know, synchronized business cycles. Uh, not excessive fiscal deficit, maybe also some risk sharing occurring to the fiscal system. Uh, The Eurozone is not a fiscal union, has not been for a number of reasons, and is not likely to become one. Might become partially because now the Germans have to bail out uh, some of the rest of the union, but it's force on them, and the reaction is to say, no, we have to have even more strict criteria like imposing our own Balanced budget uh, kind of lost on everybody else because we don't want to be. One thing is to reshare when there are shocks that are random. So, bad times for me in California, New York is doing well, I'm transferring resources. Next year is going to be bad in New York and California transferring. That, those are kind of resharing of fiscal resources. But if systematically a particular state uh, in the US or in the Eurozone were to have a kind of systemic budget deficits, then no country will systematically want to transfer resources to them forever, uh, Germany or otherwise. So, so risk sharing is one thing in a fiscal union but not uh, systematic permanent transfer of resources. That politically becomes unsustainable. On this issue of breaking up the banks, uh, you're right saying that many of these German banks, the London banks are insolvent, they should be shut down, possibly merged with other ones. Uh, I would say uh, you know uh, shut down and cleaned up, yes, whether they're going to be merged and create a bigger conglomerates that are too big to fail i 'll be wary of doing that. Maybe instead of merging them with larger institutions, you clean them up and you split them up uh, into smaller institutions. You know I think that you know sound banking implies that you can be a relatively small bank and still have proper risk management and do sound lending. Uh, I think beyond a certain level of size of a bank, uh, the alleged economies of scale and scope are really marginal. I have not seen any meaningful evidence that those are really at work. You know, either you have good sound risk management, you can do it with a small bank, or if you have a huge super mega bank, actually uh, proper risk management becomes a mess, as I said. Uh, monitoring the thousands of P&Ls is a, is a nightmare. Nobody is able to do it. It's mission impossible. So, so, so I'm still of the view that you, know, you keep them small.
0: Okay, I'll take three more questions and that's it. Uh, Okay, the one in black jacket there, has been asking for some time. Um, I'll take the gentleman there. Okay, the gentleman there, he was very sensitive. You, You ask first.
1: Yeah, sure. Can you talk a bit more about growth prospects in China and the rest of developing Asia in the face of kind of weak growth in the Eurozone and the potential for more volatility elsewhere?
2: Just on the back of China, I mean, you didn't mention much about China at all. What are your concerns about China, particularly bank lending and real estate?
0: I question is why it's
2: here. Hi. Uh, you talk about the uh, Eurozone breaking up and focusing mainly on Greece and the uh, peripheral states. Uh, I kind of wonder, what do you think about Germany uh, actually leading the Eurozone, taking kind of stronger Deutsche mark, if you like, and... Uh, at the expense
0: of not having to actually socialize
1: uh, losses at the periphery of the eurozone. Okay, there we are. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> yeah. I didn't speak much about China because, uh, you know, at least uh, until recently, this has been a crisis of advanced economies and emerging markets. Uh, have uh, fared relatively better. They've learned the lesson from the past, and after their own financial crisis, they sand their fiscal policy. They cleaned up their banks. Uh, better supervision regulation, independence central bank committed to inflation. So while there have been significant economic pressure to trade and financial links, the good news has been that during these major financial crises in advanced economies, almost no emerging markets, with the exception of the weakest, have gone belly up, has not had a systemic banking crisis. But certainly, you know, the, uh, China being so big and important, there is a lot of question marks about the sustainability of their growth and of their policy response. And on one side, I would say, in China, you have a situation in which, uh, in the short run, there is overheating of the economy because you had massive monetary fiscal and credit stimulus. If anything, inflation is going up. And there is asset bubbles starting with real estate. So there is overheating in the short run. And you have to tighten monetary policy not to be behind the curve. You know, for an economy now, growing 11% during the last quarter annualized rate having a short-term interbank or interest rates on the deposit of 2% when inflation is 3 means the real rates are negative for an economy growing 11%. That doesn't make sense, right? Monetary policy should be much tighter, and that's why you are having beginning of inflation of goods and services and asset bubbles in real estate and otherwise. So in the short term, there's an overeating problem, but in the medium term, the challenge is a is a different one, is that uh, the model of growth of China for the last uh, 20 years has been weak currency and export led industrialization and growth. Um, but that model was working only as long as the US could uh, remain. US and UK and a few other countries, the consumer of first and last resort spending more than its income running ever larger current account deficit so that China and emerging Asia and a few others could be the producer of first and last resort spending less than their income running current account surpluses. So that was the global imbalances. That model of growth is now either broken or challenged because the overspending countries have to spend less, consume less, import less. Their current account deficits are shrinking and the current account surplus of China is also uh, shrinking as well. And the question is, how has China been able to restore high economic growth with the collapse of its net exports? You know, between 2008 and 2009, net exports as a share of GDP fell from 11% to 5 That would have implied a severe reduction of growth, well below the 8% they achieved last year. How could, how could they achieve the 8%? The way they did it, in terms of aggregate demand uh, decomposition, has not been through an increase of consumption as a share of GDP. Consumption as a share of GDP in China is still low, around 36%. The US is 70 so US consumes too much, China consumes too little and saves too much. But the way they maintain growth, given the collapse of net exports, has been through massive uh, capex spending and fixed investment. You have had uh, infrastructure spending and building more infrastructure. You have had uh, cheap loans that finance the commercial real estate development. And then the state owned enterprises were given cheap credit by state owned banks and were told produce more and hire more and increase capacity when there is already a glut of capacity in heavy industry uh, steel, aluminum, cement, you name it. So fixed investment was already too high in China, around 42% of GDP in 08, became in In 2009, 47% of GDP, so 95% of the growth of China last year was actually fixed investment. And the problem is that all this overcapacity eventually is going to lead to a more glut of capacity that eventually is going to cause slowdown of growth and problems of deflation in China and the rest of the world. You know, there is already... A bubble and excess capacity in commercial and residential real estate. all this excess capacity, manufacturing again is going to imply that in a world in which there is not enough demand that glass is increasing in every industry. And even for infrastructure, I would say China for a country at that level of economic development is infrastructure a way to advance compared to what they should be. I mean, you go to China, you have these brand new, fancy, expensive airports and they're semi-empty. You drive outside towns like Chongqing and you have these highways uh, to nowhere. You know, they have all these beautiful bullet trains but you know nobody's using it. You know, Whenever I go to Shanghai I never take the bullet train to the city because it stops in the middle of Pudong so if you want to go to downtown you know, you'd know, rather take a cab and therefore it's a fancy maglev train, very expensive, nobody's using it. And that's how it's financial the spending. The provincial government borrowing and spending more than they should. Uh, the special investment vehicles being created to create unfunded investments and uh, forcing banks that are still stayed on to provide cheap loans to these uh, investment uh, special purpose vehicles or local government provincial government eventually that 's going to imply a rise in non performing loans and fiscal problems so So the paradox of China is short run overheating inflation and asset bubble, but over time too much investment implies the risk of actually overcapacity and deflation. And the biggest challenge of China facing is to switch their model of economic growth from reliance on net exports and on fixed investment to greater reliance on private consumption. Private consumption, share GDP, has to rise. Saving has to fall. And the question is how long is it going to take for that to happen. There are a number of structural reasons why Chinese save a lot and consume too little. And those things are going to change only slowly over time. So China could face this growth Constraint down the line because they cannot keep on having more fixed investment. There is no country in the world that is so productive can take half of output every year and revest it into new capital stock without eventually not having a glut of capacity and a, and a serious uh, NPL problem. Um, on German exiting the monetary union, certainly you ask the average German today, they say it was a mistake to join and be in a union of people like uh, the lazy Greeks and so on. <laughs> who, we were working hard saving keeping wages at a lead while they were having a you know, big, long, decade long, big fat Greek wedding and they spend it all <laughs> and now we have to bail them out so let's exit. Uh, in reality that's uh, unlikely to happen, most likely because you know, they, uh, there are no ways for a member of the Eurozone to exit the monetary union without exiting the European Union. So as much as, you know, there's the German, it might be unhappy about the current situation, the best they can do is to say okay, if Greece and others don't do the adjustment, then we're going to essentially force you to exit the, the monetary union, but you're going to exit. We're going to keep a hard core of countries that have fiscal discipline and flexible economies. So so I would say it's more likely that, uh, that uh, Greece down the line exits rather than uh, Germany unilaterally saying I'm going to destroy not just the monetary union but also the European Union because you cannot exit the monetary union without exiting the European Union. Um, so, so, so it's more likely that the laggards and the weak members are going to drop as opposed to the kind of like a stronger uh, economy in the Union.
0: Okay, I guess we should stop. Uh, Nuri will be there. Books have been sold and he will be signing books. Thanks for the very uplifting and cheerful yes. speech.